Greetings and welcome to episode 39 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the Nanhan borderlands after 1949, that is to say, under communist rule. Okay, now the two most conspicuous, largest, and in terms of demographics, uh, overwhelmingly majority non-Han regions after 1949, uh, obviously those two are Xinjiang in the far northwest and Tibet, which is immediately to the south of Xinjiang, uh, the two uh, provincial level units uh, today. Um, they, they, they shared their northern and southern borders. Xinjiang's southern border and Tibetan's northern border, they both butt up right against one another. Okay, um, Those are the two regions we're going to be spending most of our time talking about today, but of course we also have to, have to address other areas of China that have non-Han populations, significant non-Han Han populations as well. There aren't a ton of them. Okay, There used to be a lot more. Uh, throughout Chinese history, we know that there, that most of the area outside of the traditional 18 inner provinces outside of the Yangtze and uh, Yellow River basins, uh, drainage basins, uh, most of those areas outside of that area um, were populated by people who today would be classified as non-Han. Although, if you remember that episode, Who Are the Han? The term Han itself, this ethnonym, this, this label for the Han people, itself has a very complicated history, and it's evolved, its meaning has changed uh, uh, numerous times over the centuries. Okay, um, we're also going to talk a little bit about Yunnan. Uh, Yunnan is a far southwestern province that has borders with several Southeast Asian countries. Okay, and some of the people in Yunnan share um, linguistic and ethnic and cultural ties with people in, let's say, uh, uh, the northern portions of Laos and Thailand and Burma. All right. Um, now, a few other er big, big areas that we want to deal with very quickly before we move on. Manchuria and Outer Mongolia. As we know, in the first half of the 20th century, um, there were two other major regions that had um, a sense of ethnic difference, Okay, whether it was in reality or whether it was in uh, the imagination, the political imagination. Both Manchuria and Outer Mongolia were also on par with what, with let's say, uh, Xinjiang and Tibet as major, you know, territorially speaking, substantial parts of the new Chinese Republic in the 20th century, in which there is either a very recent legacy of non-Han people having lived there, or a, a very present day, uh, not a legacy at all. This is just the reality. There are still tons of non-Han people here. Um, now, Manchuria, we sort of already talked about a few episodes ago, that was largely Sinicized, okay? Uh, demographically, ethnically, linguistically, Manchuria, the far northeastern region, which is now split up into three major provinces, but during the 20th century, Manchuria was actually split up between many different provinces. The Nationalist Party, during the Republic of China, they had a whole bunch of provinces in there that many of the designations no longer exist. Um, Manchuria was largely Sinicized in the late 19th century as part of that general rush to... Uh, assimilate most of the non-Han borderlands in response to the Western imperial threat, namely Russia, especially in the northern and, and northwestern border regions of China. The idea was, even though the imperial court was Manchu, i.e. non-Han, they were thinking that, you know, Han is our demographic majority, um, and if we want to send settlers to these regions so that they seem more Chinese, we need to encourage and allow Han migration to these areas. Now, they tried to encourage Han migration to all the borderlands, all right, Mongolia, Manchuria, Xinjiang, and to a lesser extent, even Tibet, even though the Han settlers couldn't really get to Tibet. 
Manchuria was the only one in which they were largely successful. We'll add to that Inner Mongolia as opposed to Outer Mongolia. Uh, Manchuria was largely successful from the perspective of the Qing court, the central government. And by the time you get to the 20th century, Manchuria is overwhelmingly Han. And overwhelmingly is speaking, the people who live there are speaking a form of northern Mandarin Chinese. Okay, now the Japanese will come in and as they gain more and more influence in Manchuria, they're going to try to create this idea. Remember, I talked about that political imagination. They're going to say, well, this was once the homeland of the Manchu people, hence the name Manchuria. Um, and so in order to justify our uh, colonial rule over this area, we are going to say that we have liberated the oppressed Manchu people who were oppressed and persecuted by the Han. We are liberating them from oppressive Chinese colonial rule. We're liberators, not colonialists. The Chinese are the colonialists. And hence they set up in 1932 the state of Manchu Kuo, just literally the country of Manchus. Now there's a lot of fiction involved here, a lot of imagination, because there weren't a whole lot of Manchus who would even identify as Manchus at this time period, and very few even spoke a Manchu language, but the Japanese needed that pretext to justify their, their, their rule over a puppet state there. Because by the 1930s, national determination is the rule. Anyone who wants to conquer or rule or administer lands that are not populated by your core demographic group that's associated with your state, your so-called nation-state, the perfect alignment of, of ethnicity and political boundaries, no such thing has ever existed, but we like to think that they do, in order to justify extending your boundaries beyond your core ethnic nation, in the 20th century and today, you have to justify that in terms of liberating other nation states. And we're just a temporary steward as these poor, oppressed people uh, get on their feet and will eventually leave one day. Now, in reality, that's not how it works. You go in and that's your pretext and then you end up staying forever and for very selfish reasons. But you can't admit that. You can't admit that. All right, so Manchuria is off the table as far as a non-Han region. Once this ridiculous charade that the Japanese have implemented in, Manchu in Manchuria slash Manchukuo uh, is totally abolished after 1945 when they lose the war, uh, no one seriously believes that Manchuria has any substantial ethnic or linguistic difference anymore. All right, even though in the census now you'll have several hundred thousand people who identify as Manchu, they generally don't speak the Manchu language um, and some of them are, are, are positing sort of an imagined association with distant ancestors who may or may not have been, you know, quote-unquote, real Manchus. But now it's hip. It's hip. Uh, especially for a certain period in the 1980s and 90s, it was very cool to be non-Han again, especially with some of the institutional state privileges that would be granted to uh, some of those groups. More on that later. All right, so Manchuria off the table. Inner Mongolia, we know, was also largely Sinicized with Han settlers. China never loses Inner Mongolia. Today, it's sort of a joke. You have this Inner, Mon Inner Mongolian autonomous region, and I think if you look at the census, it's something like 80 or 90% uh, Chinese. It's overwhelmingly uh, Han Chinese, urban, settled people. Okay, Outer Mongolia was a little different, and we already talked about that when we talked about the non-Han borderlands during the Republican era, during the Nationalist era. Okay, cast your mind back several episodes ago, we talked about how Outer Mongolia was lost during the Civil War. The Qing, Outer Mongolia, that's the Qing Dynasty's designation. You have Outer and Inner, Outer being further away. And Outer Mongolia today roughly overlaps with the Mongolian People's Republic. 
Okay, now remember, how did Outer Mongolia end up being separated from the modern Chinese state? Because it was a part of the Qing dynasty. You had an elite rebellion undertaken by the Mongolian nobility, okay, very much these privileged elites, who saw their privileges being eroded by an influx of Han migrants and moneylenders and settlers. And they were becoming indebted to these people. And they saw that this union, this alliance that they had with the Manchu, with the Isingyoro ruling family of the Qing dynasty, eroding. And in 1911, after the Wuhan Rebellion on October 10th, 1911, a couple months later, these Mongolian nobles said, we're going to take this opportunity to announce our secession from the Chinese state. And they did. And they went to St. Petersburg to seek Russian support. And the Russians said, you know, we're not too interested in doing in, in antagonizing China, but this could be very useful to have this thorn in China's side uh, in Outer Mongolia. And so we'll sort of support them uh, wishy-washy uh, back and forth and see what comes of this. All right, It can't hurt to encourage the Mongols um, and see what, you know, where this goes, because they do occupy a very uh, important buffer zone between the Russian Empire in Siberia and the Chinese state. Okay. Now, during the Russian Civil War, if you remember, the white Russians, the royalists, the ones who are fighting the Bolsheviks and Lenin and Stalin and all that, they flee into Outer Mongolia, which is nominally under Chinese control, the control of Chinese warlords. And the Bolsheviks, the Reds, tell the Chinese, kick our mortal enemies out of your territory or we'll do it for you. And no warlord, uh, the warlords all say they're going to do it. They say the right things. But in reality, no warlord is going to expend men and ammunition um, on uh, uh, killing a foe or, you know, against a, a, a rival that is only going to weaken you against your true rivals, other Chinese warlords. And so none of them end up doing it. The Reds say, fine, we'll do it ourselves. They go in, they, they destroy the, the white royalists in outer Mongolia, and they decide to stay. And they decide to stay. And then after the last Bolg Khan, the last elite Mongolian spiritual leader dies in 1924, they insert sort of a proletarian Mongolian poor shepherd of that sort of, you know, proper proletarian background, uh, from a socialist perspective, put him into the uh, president's position. And for the next 70 years, Mongolia is uh, nominally an independent socialist state. But in reality, it's sort of like what Manchukuo was for the Japanese. Okay, it is a puppet state. It is an absolute puppet state satellite of the Soviet Union. The, the leaders of the Mongolian People's Republic from 1921 all the way until 1991 when the Soviet Union collapses uh, can't undertake any real substantive big policy decision without the approval, without the agreement of Moscow. Okay, that's your definition of a puppet state. The only difference between Manchukuo and Outer Mongolia... What do you think the only difference is? This is a great quiz question what, you know, that I would give my students. What is the only difference between Outer Mongolia or the, the Mongolian People's Republic and the state of Manchukuo? The, the answer, the only difference is that Japan lost the war and the Soviet Union did not. That's it. If Japan doesn't lose World War II or if they have anything less than total surrender and they have a negotiated settlement, they could have very well kept Manchukuo and turned it into the state. And as time went on, it would have become naturalized. And we would have a Republic of Manchukuo today. We don't. Okay? That's what war does. The winners get to maintain their fictions about the world um, in their geopolitical favor. And the losers do not. Now, back to the Chinese perspective. Why are we still talking about Outer Mongolia if they lost it in 1921? Because Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists never acknowledged that they lost Outer Mongolia. 
They, you know, said a big F.U. stuck up their middle finger and said, we don't recognize this. Outer Mongolia was part of the Qing dynasty. We inherited the Qing dynasty. That's our territory. And from start to finish, in the 1920s and 1930s, all the way up until 1946, the Nationalist Party and Chiang Kai-shek uh, maintained this stance. We do not recognize Mongolian independence. That's ours. And they printed maps that continued to show Outer Mongolia shaded in a color that made it a part of the Republic of China. And maps on Taiwan to this day. If it's an official map produced by the government, it will, it will continue to include Outer Mongolia shaded in. And they will call it Outer Mongolia. Why Mongu? not the Mongolian People's Republic. It's absolutely insane, isn't it? <laughs> but they continue to do that. Now, I said from the 1920s until 1946. Why? What's so important about 1946? In 1946, after World War II, the Chinese Civil War breaks out again. Nationalists versus communists. And at this point, Chiang Kai-shek is fully aware that the Russians are intervening in various parts of Manchuria, because where they have a lot of their army when they were fighting the Japanese, in Manchuria, in Inner Mongolia, through Outer Mongolia, and also in Xinjiang. The Russians are meddling all over for their interests, and sometimes in the interests of the Chinese communists, rarely in the interest of Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party. And so they go to the bargaining table and they say, okay, we got to win this civil war. We need the Russians to, you know... Get, at, you know, get their nose out of our business. How about we offer to recognize Mongolian independence? Because, you know, in reality, they already have it. Let's offer that concession and see if Russia, in return, will be willing to stop meddling in our internal affairs all along our northern and northwestern borders. And the Russians said, okay, on paper. And so on paper, the sides agreed. Okay, we'll recognize the independence of Mongolia and you will agree to stop meddling in favor of the Chinese communist or to our detriment anywhere in Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, and in Xinjiang. And when it became clear within the next year that the Russians had no intention of upholding their side of the bargain, Chiang Kai-shek reneged on his agreement and said again, F you, stuck up his middle fingers and said, fine, we no longer acknowledge that Mongolia's independence for putting it back on our maps. So for about a year, <laughs> one year in the 20th century, uh, uh, the Nationalist Party acknowledged that Outer Mongolia was independent, and then they quickly took that back when they did not get the favors that they expected in exchange for that important concession. Okay, And they carried that, that repudiation of the Outer Mongolian independence all the way down to the present day. All right, It's a total fiction, but it's a fiction that is still maintained in the halls of power in Taiwan today. Well, technically, the Republic of China. All right. Um, next. What did the communists do with Outer Mongolia? Well, this is a sticky subject. All right. This is awkward for them because Mao Zedong and the communists, they're just as much nationalists, nationalists with a lower, with, with a lowercase n, they're just as much nationalists as the nationalists in Chiang Kai-shek with a capital N. Okay, that is, they, they recognize the uh, inviolable uh, borders of the Chinese state that supposedly go back to the mists of time all the way back as far as you can go. There is a Chinese nation, it's always existed, blah, 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 blah. Okay, they, they subscribe to that too. All right. In fact, remember that episode on the history of Taiwan when I was talking about the, uh, 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 the nationalist support from Taiwan for the Xinjiang government in exile? And eventually... The uh, nationalists uh, have this document that I found in uh, uh, the Academia Sinica Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, archives. I found this document in which the nationalist diplomats are basically saying, you know what? Uh, we need to worry more about these Uyghur separatists in Turkey 
then we need to worry about the communists and what they're doing in Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs live within China, because at least the communists on the mainland, even though we disagree with them fundamentally in political ideology, they're still nationalists. All right, They're Chinese nationalists, and they're not going to give away Chinese territory for you know unless they're forced to in war. Okay, We have to worry more about these Uyghur separatists in Turkey than we do the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing with regard to uh, 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 the definition of what the Chinese state is. All right, So the communists are just as much nationalists as the nationalists are. However, they're fraternal comrades in arms with the socialists. You can't have the appearance of an open split in the socialist party during the Cold War, which was the era that we're in now. So... The Chinese, even though Mao Zedong badly wants Outer Mongolia back, he does, by the way, um, they can't really accuse the Soviets of being imperialists. The nationalists can, but the communists can't, because communists aren't supposed to be imperialists. You've, you've evolved beyond that. You're more enlightened now. You don't do imperialism. So what are you going to do? Well, it's all behind the scenes. And for so long, we had no idea what was going on. And we just assumed that Mao was okay with Outer Mongolia being gone. Recent, well, I don't know about recent, it's probably already 15, 20 years ago now, uh, recent archival research has shown by scholars not working in the Chinese archives, or even the, the Soviet archives, uh, much of which remains closed, but going to the archives of the Eastern Bloc countries in Eastern Europe that were allies with the Soviets. They preserve documents that would be circulated all around the socialist states, copies of documents get sent everywhere. And through them, we can finally understand what the Chinese communists thought about Outer Mongolia after 1949. What did they think? They wanted it back, just like the nationalists. But they couldn't say so in public, because that would be a criticism of another socialist state. And, by, and you're implicitly uh, uh, suggesting then, you're implying that they're imperialist as well. Behind the scenes, though, Mao Zedong expected that the Soviets would now give back Outer Mongolia to China because now China is a socialist country. You have nothing to fear. We're not imperialist. You're not imperialist. Okay, so give us back Mongolia, which we never should have lost in the first place. And the archives also show that the Soviets said no. And when they said no, Mao was livid. All behind the scenes. All behind closed doors. But... That's that. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to war with the Soviet Union? No, you're not. Might makes right, unfortunately, in this world that we live in. And so they give up. And that's the end of the story. Is that the Chinese communists fully expected they would get Outer Mongolia back. They wanted it just as badly as the nationalists did, but they were forced by the political circumstances of the time to show socialist solidarity with the Soviet Union. And that they did. And so you have this wonderful irony today of realizing that of all the territory of the Qing Empire, the last imperial state, the only significant chunk of territory that China lost was Outer Mongolia. Who officially signed that away and agreed that that was not a part of China? The current ruling party of China. <laughs> They're the ones who did it. Don't you love the ironies of history? They're the ones who said... Fine, it's yours. Get out of here. We don't want to talk about this anymore. You don't hear that talked about too much on the mainland today because it's one of those topics that, you know, kind of like the Great Leap Forward. You don't want to admit that the, the party that's in power today, the one that stakes its entire claim on its legitimacy to rule all of China, we are the true nationalists. The, the nationalists in Taiwan are not. They're, they're the traitors. It's hard to admit that. 
And you don't want to admit that you killed 30, 40 million people during the Great Leap Forward, and you don't want to admit that you're the one who's responsible for losing the biggest chunk of territory in the transition from the last empire um, to the modern-day 20th century republics. Okay, moving on. We've uh, dealt with the non-Han regions that are really either not part of the Chinese state or not even non-Han anymore by 1949. Let's talk about big concepts here, okay? The system of regional autonomy and Soviet affirmative action that are going to be implemented anywhere where you have non-Han minority peoples, large numbers of non-Han minority peoples. Now, most of the time we're talking about Xinjiang and Tibet and possibly Yunnan in the far southwest. Okay, and then some other areas, maybe parts of Inner Mongolia, where you still have some, some pockets of Mongols. Or other, part, other cities in the country where you have large populations of Hui, Chinese-speaking Muslims. A lot of those live in Gansu or Ningxia province, also in the northwest, on the road to Xinjiang, uh, even further out to the northwest. All right, what is the system of regional autonomy and Soviet affirmative action? Like everything else, the way that you're going to govern and, and administer your non-Han minority peoples under a communist state, you're going to take that model from the Soviet Union. All right, like everything else, the Soviet Union is your reference point. They've already perfected the model. We just need to tweak the model, adapt it to Chinese special conditions. All right, to Chinese characteristics, so the uh, cliched phrase goes. Now, the basic principle of regional autonomy, the idea is, is that we're going to let every single person live on a plot of land that bears the name of their assigned ethnic group. Okay, it's the idea. The Tibetans are going to have a Tibetan autonomous region. The Zhuang ethnic group may be in Guizhou province, also in the southwest. Guizhou is one of those provinces along with Yunnan that has large populations of non-Han peoples, but they don't really comprise a majority throughout the entire province. The Zhuang people, the Yi people in Yunnan, they're going to have an Yi autonomous region. They're going to have a Zhuang autonomous region, something like that. Everyone gets a plot of land that bears the name of their ethnic group. All right? Or something very similar to that. And this will be implemented at every single political unit every level of the political hierarchy, at the level of the Republic, the Republic of China, People's Republic of China, all right, all the Han, get China, <laughs> that's your state, that represents you, that says you're important, you matter, this is your state, and then at different levels, you know, the, 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 the province perhaps, all right, the Tibetans, you're not really going to identify with China, so we'll give you something else to identify with, a smaller chunk of territory, the Tibetan Autonomous Region. All right, and then all the way down to the county for those groups who are, you know, even smaller minorities. Who you say, you're not going to get a whole province-level unit. You're not going to get an autonomous region. But we still want to recognize that you're special, that you're important, that you have an identity all your own. And we're not going to oppress you and erase your identity because we're enlightened people. Imperialism is a thing of the past. So you're going to get your own, you know, Kyrgyz autonomous county Kyrgyz are a good one. Uh, nomadic people in the southwestern part of Xinjiang often live up in the mountains. Uh, not big enough to, you know, range over the whole province. You're not getting a whole province. Kyrgyz Autonomous Region, hell no. Hey, we'll give you a county. Kyrgyz Autonomous County, sure. It's your county. You Kyrgyz are special. And we acknowledge that on paper now in, 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 in long-lasting government institutions. The idea here is that you're giving the illusion of ethnic self-rule to everyone based on the principle of the majority ethnic group at each level. Why go to all this trouble? It is the only way that multi-ethnic states 
can counter charges of colonialism or imperialism in a world in which national determination and the ideal of the nation-state permeates all of our political imagination. This is how you justify ethno-culturally alien rule. Ali- rule by people who are you know, culturally and ethnically different from the people that they rule over. That's not supposed to happen. Ideally, that's not supposed to happen in a world of nation-states. Nation-states are the perfect alignment of nation and state. Okay? In a world of nation-states, which we're supposed to be living in, but we don't, you're not supposed to have alien rule. That was common in the old days. It was actually, that was, that was the default throughout the world, everywhere. But now that's seen as not okay. That's imperialism. That's colonialism. And that's bad. That's bad. All right. So, they even take this one step further. Now, the Soviets... The Soviets had created actual autonomous republics. All right, they they, they gave a much higher le- uh, political unit of designation within the political hierarchy for this autonomous facade, and it was a facade. Right? Don't don't get me wrong here. This is all a facade. It's largely fiction. Okay. What the Soviets did is they said we'll have a whole bunch of republics. We're going to be a federation made up of republics. And so they created a, 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 a Soviet, what is it called? The uh, Soviet Socialist Republic of Kazakhstan. I believe that's the name. And they did this like 16 or 17 of them. There might even been more. Ukraine was a republic, a Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, of Belarus, okay? Of Kyrgyzstan, of Uzbekistan, of Kazakhstan, of Tajikistan, of Turkmenistan, both in Eastern Europe and in Central Asia. And throughout the Caucasus, they did this. All right, you don't need to seek independence outside of our umbrella because we are an enlightened, diverse umbrella, and we'll give you the autonomy you seek without having to search beyond our state. Okay, I like to think of Soviet affirmative action, Soviet regional autonomy, as the uh, working the same way that a vaccine works. If you think of uh, sort of a, me- a medicinal analogy here, a vaccine works by injecting into your bloodstream a little bit of the disease that you're trying to prevent from becoming full-blown. Okay? You don't want to have full-blown smallpox because it's probably going to kill you. So you inject into your bloodstream a tiny little bit of smallpox, the virus. And then your body gets disturbed by this, and then it builds up immunity, and then you're not going to be able to ever get smallpox infecting you. Soviet regional autonomy affirmative action is very similar, all right? From the perspective of the people who are in charge of a big multi-ethnic state in which you're afraid of charges of colonialism and imperialism, what you do is you say, we're going to inject a tiny little bit of nationalism so as to prevent full-blown independent nationalism. If we give the Uyghurs, if we give the Tibetans, if we give the Zhuang a little taste of an autonomous region, all right? then that will, that will prevent them, that will uh, discourage them from seeking full independence. And they'll be content to remain within an enlightened, diverse Chinese republic. Now, the Soviets did this at the, at the level of republics. And that ended up being a big, a big problem, because when they dissolved in 1991, these republics had the right in their constitution to secede from the federation. They couldn't 
actually do that for most of the Soviet Union. But when they when the Soviet Union was weakened in the in 1990s, uh, they had that clause in their constitution. You you can secede from the Soviet Union. Okay, Chinese weren't going to do any such thing. They said, Oh no 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 no. We have a much more uh, a dangerous history of imperialism here. Premier Zhou Enlai, I actually have read this speech in which, you know, almost verbatim, he says something to the effect of, um, you know, the Soviet Union gave their people uh, 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 republics within a federation. We're not going to do that. Our state is a republic. We're not the Federation of China. And so we don't have other republics within the federation. China is the republic, the People's Republic of China. And the next unit down for non-Han peoples is an autonomous region. Region only. That's all you're going to get is a region. Okay? And a region can't secede. Even on paper. Even fictionally, a region cannot secede. And they said, why are we doing this? Why are we departing from the Soviet model? Because we have a history of aggressive foreign imperialism. And if we give you more, if we give you as much as the Soviets gave their non-Russian peoples, we would end up being broken apart like the old days. China cut up like a watermelon. All right. So how does this actually work in practice? How does this affirmative action stuff work in practice, a system of regional autonomy? All right. Let's take, um, uh, you know, Xinjiang or Tibet. You have a parallel track of government posts in these autonomous regions. All right, you're going to have the party apparatus and you're going to have the government administrative apparatus. The party apparatus is far more powerful. All right, there's going to be a, a, like a, a general secretary, a party secretary of the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Yeah, the Uyghurs are represented there. All right, it's their autonomous region. All right, and you'll have a party version of government and you'll have an actual government. The party is always stronger under the Communist Party rule. Okay, the way it'll work is usually the party secretary, the highest ranking party member in Xinjiang or Tibet will be a Han with you know, undisputed loyalty to the Politburo in Beijing. No one doubts his loyalty. And then the government, the government post will be filled by a Tibetan or a Uyghur. All right, or someone drawn from the minority, po- the, the majority minority population of that region. All right, that's how it works. This is actually kind of similar to what the Manchus did, remember? Or what all non-Han nomadic northern hybrid states did throughout Chinese history. I remember the Manchus and Mongols would, you know, get like 50% of all the posts. And then they would be shadowed or paralleled by a Han administrator who also held a post sort of equal in power to them. And one of them held power far outside of their ratio of demographics. That's what's going on here too as well. But it's a little bit reversed. And this time, the minority person is holding a position of power that is exactly commensurate with their demographic representation. Like the Uyghurs, where the majority were 70% of the population. Obviously, the, the, the governor of this province should be a Uyghur. And now the Han, who holds the, the position of party secretary, he's the one who's in the position analogous to the Manchus or the Mongols of the old days. He is now representing an ethnic group that has very little representation on the ground. Okay? So they've reversed the process. And so every single one of these autonomous regions will have this sort of two-tiered track of government. There's a party representative who's almost always Han and in reality has most of the power. And then there's a, a local minority representative who usually runs the government and has significantly less power. 
than the person who's in the party. Okay? And most of the people in the party throughout the whole country are going to be Han. Because they didn't spend a whole lot of time in non-Han regions before they took power, and therefore there aren't a whole lot of non-Han cadres who are politically trustworthy, who you can bring in to the government. Okay? Now, that local government has a visible majority. Visible. Visible is the key. All right? Visible majority of, of officials who are drawn from the local ethnic group. Think about, um, you know, how any company today, if they want to show how diverse they are in the United States or Europe or whatnot, they'll find the one or two employees who are not white. And they'll prominently display them on company brochures. I, I work in a university. And although I'm a white guy, I'm a white dude, uh, I, I, I hear uh, complaints about from many people in, you know, in academia, professors who are not white, you know, who consider themselves to be people of color or minorities. And they will often say, I get called upon to serve on committees and do service work. You know, committee service work is the worst kind of thing that we have to do in universities. Most academics don't enjoy it. We have teaching, we have research, and we have service. Running the administration of the university, sitting on committees, this sort of stuff. Oh, God, I hate doing that stuff. Okay? And oftentimes on these committees, they're visible. People see these, com these committees. They make pronouncements. They send out emails. They make big decisions. We all hear about it. We see who's on that committee. Sometimes pictures get taken of these people. And oftentimes, for the sake of you know, trying to project a politically diverse image, even if the faculty, from a percentage-wise, may only be 5% non-white people in faculties, you'll see on these committees and on public brochures and whatnot, they're going to constantly go to that 5% and make sure that they're prominently represented to make, sure, to make it look like our university is very diverse. It's a common problem in universities, companies, everything. And the end result is that those minorities oftentimes get called upon to do more work. More work than their white counterparts. Okay? We're seeing a, a similar thing here. You want to have a visible majority of non-Han people who occupy, seemingly occupy positions of power. Whether they actually wield power is a different question, which we'll talk about in a minute. Usually, they don't. Usually, they don't. They're just for show. In fact, that is a direct quote that I found in my research in Xinjiang from a Uyghur who at one point in the 1950s was interviewed about why he was so upset about the, the conditions in his workplace and, and the discrimination he faced. And he said, we're just by how kanda. You just put us on display for show. You didn't give us any real power. By how kanda. <laughs> he was really pissed. All right. Now, talked about system of regional autonomy. There's also Soviet affirmative action, which the Chinese are also going to adapt to their own purposes. What, so what uh, form does affirmative action take? You think affirmative action is something you've only heard about in the United States or Europe? No. The Soviets actually started official, you know, state-sponsored affirmative action. There's a wonderful book written by Terry Martin, a professor at Harvard, called The Affirmative Action Empire, basically saying this is the first state that implemented a systematic policy of affirmative action. And they were the first ones to do it. And then the Chinese adapted that. Well, non-Han peoples of China, after 1949, did get preferential treatment in university admissions, family planning, language autonomy, things like this. You might say, well, that's not much. Yeah, yeah maybe you're right. Maybe it's not all that much. But for some people, these are pretty big perks. Okay? What does it mean, university admissions? You know that you probably heard, you know, can understand, maybe you already are familiar with it, university admission in China is insanely competitive. It's really hard to get into a good university. Okay? You know what can help you get into a good university? 
to leapfrog the competition if your uh, test scores or grades may not be uh, good enough to get you in, well, it's going to help if you, are, if you come from a government-recognized minority group. That will help. Okay, you'll, get, you'll, you'll, you'll be given preferential treatment. And they'll say, okay, we, we are acknowledging that you come from a people who has been oppressed in the past, not as many economic opportunities. We want to show how enlightened we are. We're going to let, let you in, and you're going to occupy this slot. And uh, as a consequence, a Han person who may have better test scores than you, we're going to say, oh, no, no, they grew up privileged. We're going to kick them out, and you're going to get in. So that's a big thing. That's a big thing. That's a big perk to have preferential treatment in university admissions in probably the country where it's most difficult to get into a good university. Family planning, one-child policy, doesn't apply to minority peoples. Doesn't apply. Have as many kids as you want. Okay, this is for the Han. This is just for the Han. Language autonomy. Sure, you got to learn Chinese at some point, but we are going to say that you're going to have the right to be educated in your own language, to have your own script, your own printed literature, and we're not going to interfere with that. Now, when I talk about these sort of perks, and there are other perks too, but when I talk about these sort of perks, these, this is the ideal, and this is as they existed first in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Some of these are being eroded today, and we're going to talk about the legacy of all this today. There is a repudiation that is growing of many of these Chinese adaptations of Soviet affirmative action. All right, now... Let's talk about Tibet and Xinjiang. Finally, now we've got some of these big concepts out of the way. Tibet. All right. The big difference between Tibet and Xinjiang, to put this very simply, Tibet has very few natural resources to extract. And what it does have are incredibly difficult and expensive to access. Not necessarily even worth the trouble. Okay. You might have be familiar with Tibet rooftop of the world. Much of it is a frozen wasteland. Look on a map. And there's a lot of empty, frozen parts of Tibet. All right, very beautiful, I'm sure. I'm sure the people who live there have done everything they could in ingenious ways to make a living there, but geology, geography simply has not been kind from the perspective of resources that you can exploit. Okay? Xinjiang will be different. Xinjiang has resources to exploit, and they promise to be very lucrative if you can just get to them and exploit them in an efficient way. Not so with Tibet. So Tibet is important to the communist state and earlier for the nationalist state, uh, mainly for geopolitical purposes, for strategic purposes. Because you know Tibet has a history of attracting Western attention and sympathy for Tibetan Buddhism. Westerners love Tibetan Buddhism. Ooh, so mysterious, you know, all this sort of stuff. The Dalai Lama. For some reason, Tibetan Buddhism has a, a very big audience. Richard Gere, Brad Pitt, they all love Tibet. Okay? So you got to... You know, you want to keep Britain and the U.S. from meddling. The, the British, when they had India, when they had British India, uh, they were very close to Tibet, and they saw Tibet within their sphere of influence, and they wanted Tibet to be semi-autonomous from China without actually getting independence. Okay? Uh, the British were never willing to say, uh, we're going to take the drastic step of really pissing off China <laughs> for the sake of what? Of what? Independent Tibet? How does that serve our interests? It doesn't serve our interests. We're not going to... There's nothing to take away from Tibet. That's just to fulfill someone's, you know, bleary-eyed dream of an independent Tibetan Buddhist state for their own purposes. There's no real economic reason to have Tibet ind independent. We just want Tibet to be sort of semi-autonomous from China as a thorn in China's side. All right? So no one was willing to stick out their neck and, you know, truly piss off China and potentially go to war 
by sponsoring Tibetan you know, independence. All right. Uh, so it's there in a, in a semi-autonomous form after 1949. But the Chinese say, this is our territory. This is our territory. It has been a part of our territory for a long time, and they will go to great pains, bend over backwards to look through the historical records and show any sort of interaction for the past thousand years. Any sort of, you know, uh, 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 memorial letter that was passed back and forth between a religious leader of Tibet and an emperor of, a, of any Chinese dynasty. They'll say, oh, look, that's evidence that Tibet acknowledged our authority, that we have ties that go way back. And they look at the Qing dynasty and they would say, look, the, 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 you know, uh, we, we, we had this golden urn in Beijing that the Qianlong Emperor introduced in which we would help choose the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. Oh, that clearly means Tibet was a part of our, of our state. Well, no, that's not how it worked. We, you know, we talked about before. It was a patron-priest relationship. It was a religious patronage relationship. It wasn't territorial sovereignty in the sense that we think of it today. Okay, but this is true throughout the world. We have these problems everywhere throughout the world. Uh, this is just the case with China, in which uh, piecemeal, vague, often unstated uh, political relationships will be reinterpreted in the 20th century as inviolable, total, 100% homogenous sovereignty over all the land and people of these regions of the earth that we see relationships with um, in the past, even if those relationships were tenuous and not really clear what the nature of that relationship was in the first place. So Tibet is going to be maintained for geopolitical purposes, for national pride, a reversal of national humiliation. We're not going to let the imperialists take this away. We lost Outer Mongolia. We're not going to lose Tibet, even if it's more trouble than it's worth. And Tibet is more trouble than it's worth. Okay? Keep this in mind. That the Chinese Communist Party will be sinking money and investment into Tibet far out of proportion to anything they're going to be taking out. They're taking Tibet and maintaining it for purposes of national pride and keeping imperialists out. That's largely it. Okay? There's not a whole lot to do there. And the Chinese Communist Party will also actually resist introducing overbearing policies of integration with Tibet. What's remarkable about the relationship between Tibet and the rest of China in the 1950s, at least, is that Beijing, Mao Zedong, the communists, they walked lightly. They walked on eggshells, actually. No, not in the beginning. In 1949, 1950, they very much said, we're, we're, we're coming in, and if you resist us, we'll kill you. And they marched an army through the highlands of Qinghai on the way to going to Tibet. And they said, you know, we're, we're, we're liberating Tibet. We are going to Jiefang. The PLA, the People's Liberation Army, is going to liberate Tibet, just like we liberated every other part of China. We're liberating you from the feudal past and from foreign imperialists. And they have the guns. And, you know, so if you want to dispute that, you, you have to defeat them in a battle. No one defeats them in battle. No one even tries. And they march into Tibet. There's one or two small clashes and the Tibetan government realizes we're not going to win the battle against China. We have to let them in. And so they come in. All right. After that initial military occupation, though, the communist government says we need to walk lightly in Tibet. We cannot support large-scale Han migration. That's in stark contrast to Xinjiang, where they will support very intensive Han migration. Okay. Tibet to this day, all right, look at the, the census numbers that are published in China. No scholar that I know thinks that census numbers are fudged, that census numbers are a lie. They are, they are legit, okay? And the census numbers show that Lhasa itself, the major city of, of Tibet, 
It's got a substantial Han population. There are a good number of Han in Lhasa. The moment you leave Lhasa, the Han population throughout the rest of Tibet is often less than 1%. And the entire Tibetan autonomous region is still over 90% Tibetan. All right. Now, I'm not making any sort of claims about the quality of life of these 90% of the people who live there, or whether they feel that they're being encroached upon and oppressed and all. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about purely demographics, just to understand the difference with Xinjiang and other places, is that on the surface, the Chinese state basically did say, we cannot do wholesale assimilation of Tibet. That'll be bad. The world watches Tibet. And heck, you know, to be honest, there isn't a whole lot of incentive. There is not a whole lot of economic incentive to go crazy with trying to integrate Tibet and sort of, you know, industrial development, Han migration, all this sort of stuff. It's going gonna, it's gonna to introduce more uh, bad results than good results to do anything like that. As a result, the railroad, the railroad to Tibet, to, to Lhasa from inner China, take a guess when the railroad was completed. 2006! 2006! You know when the railroad to Xinjiang was completed? 1962. 1962, the railroad was completed to Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. That's your clear difference. Demographics and railroad. That's how you understand the major difference between Tibet and Xinjiang under the Chinese communists. Okay? Demographically, Han migration will be an inundating flood into Xinjiang. And the Uyghurs will go from 70% of the population to like 40-45% of the population in two decades. In Tibet, you still have 90% of the population is Tibetan. And you don't have railroad links to Lhasa until 2006. Okay? That's your, you know, starkest difference between the two. Now, what is the political history of Tibet since 1949? All right, let's try to understand this, because it's kind of complicated. Because I said, hey, the communists were walking on eggshells initially. After they occupied Lhasa with the People's Liberation Army, um, they were walking on eggshells and they moved very slowly. So how did we get to a situation in which today... It's pretty obvious that the many Tibetans are not happy with Chinese rule in, in, in Tibet, and it's a major global issue that we often hear about. Okay, well, let me tell you. Let me explain how Tibet still became integrated into the rest of China in a very close and intimate way that has consequences for the next 50 years, so all the way until today and for the foreseeable future. All right, now... Take your mind back to the episode on the Great Leap Forward. Remember all those socialist reforms, economic reforms, mutual aid teams, low-level co-ops, high-level co-ops, and then eventually communes, major economic reform, land reform, in which you, you know, uh, uh, seize property from the, the, the uh, pre-1949 traditional landlords and gentry class, all right, the educated wealthy elites and redistribute the land. Often you kill some of these landlords as well. All right, remember all that. The Tibetans didn't want that. The Tibetan nobility, the, the, who are still in charge, the Tibetan elites, the wealthy and powerful Tibetan elites, the Dalai Lama, the Panchen Lama, and all of their political advisors. Okay? And as part of the agreement that was signed in 1951 between the Dalai Lama and the communist state, they signed what was called a 17-point agreement. And you can go online and look at the other 16 points if you want, but the most important part of the 17-point agreement signed in 1951 was that socialist reforms would not be undertaken in Tibet until the Tibetans themselves clearly said, we're ready for it, we want you to do a socialist reform here. So, potentially, indefinitely. Because they may never say that. Okay? 
Now here's the catch. Here's the catch. You need to understand the difference between political Tibet and ethnographic Tibet. What is political Tibet? Political Tibet is strictly the Tibetan Autonomous Region. You need to pull out a map now, okay? Pull out a map, go on to Google, type in Tibetan Autonomous Region, and look at where the dotted line is. That's political Tibet. Significantly smaller than what most people think of when they think of the Tibetan cultural ethnic sphere. Okay? You can think like, you know, political China and ethnographic China. Political China is strictly the People's Republic of China. Those borders. Ethnographic China is anywhere you find people who claim they have a Chinese linguistic and cultural background. It could be the whole world, <laughs> in a sense. All right, ethnographic Tibet is Tibetan speakers of Tibetan languages, practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism. All right, uh, those you consider to be part of Tibetan cultural sphere. They are to be found in some of the states along the northern Himalayas, south of Tibet, in areas like Nepal, Bhutan, northern India, okay? But more importantly for purposes here, they're also found in the inner provinces of China. Namely, three provinces. Uh, Qinghai, Sichuan, and Yunnan. You have to look on the map again. Qinghai, Sichuan, and Yunnan are the provinces that border the Tibetan Autonomous Region uh, immediately to the east, sort of northeast, then east, and then southeast. Okay? And in each one of these provinces, Sichuan, Qinghai, and, 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 and Yunnan are all proper Chinese provinces. Okay? They aren't autonomous regions. They're, they're pure provinces. They may have autonomous counties inside, but they're provinces. All right? Just like Hunan, all right? or Guangzhou, or Zhejiang. All right, now, the way this works is that you have large Tibetan communities in the western portions of Qinghai, Sichuan, and Yunnan, up in the highlands, the areas that border the Tibetan Autonomous Region. They are Tibetans for all intents and purposes. Okay? And what's going to happen is that the Communist Party will uphold its, pro its promise in the 17-point agreement. They will not introduce socialist reforms, the things that led up to the Great Leap Forward, unless the Dalai Lama and his advisors explicitly request it. However, they feel totally okay to introduce socialist reforms within every inch of territory of regular provinces outside of the Tibetan Autonomous Region. Do you see where this is going now? Socialist reforms will be undertaken everywhere in Qinghai, in Sichuan, and in Yunnan. That means you will have some Tibetan communities living in these other provinces that will be subject to socialist reforms. What's the problem? When these communities rise up in violence and start resisting forced collectivization for the Great Leap Forward, when they see their, their, their livestock and their crops being seized for primitive accumulation to be sold on the international market, they will do exactly what Han peasants did. They will rise up and resist it. Okay, now the Han peasants will be crushed. And the Tibetan peasants outside of the Tibetan Autonomous Region will also be crushed. And when they're crushed, where are they going to go? Well, the Han have nowhere to go. And no international sympathy either. The Tibetans? You can flee into, into the Tibetan Autonomous Region where they're not doing socialist reform. And this is where the conflict started. In the mid-1950s, I think it's after 1956, 
when you first get the, you know, the movement to higher level co-ops and Mao trying to push for his little leap, which fails miserably. You start getting Tibetans fleeing, running away from their communities in western Qinghai, Sichuan, and Yunnan. And they flee into Tibet, they go to Lhasa, and they scare the shit out of the Tibetans in Lhasa saying, oh my god, this is what's happening next. And they bring the conflict of the inner provinces into Tibet. Until finally in 1959, rumors are swirling in Lhasa that it's all going to come into into the Tibetan Autonomous Region. It hasn't yet. Just the refugees from the surrounding provinces bringing tales of woe and terror and all the horrible things that are also happening to the Han. And they bring these stories in, and the rumor goes around that the Communist Party is preparing to kidnap the Dalai Lama. Whether it's true or not, we actually have no idea, but that was the rumor. And everyone's very tense thinking what's going on with the Tibetans in the neighboring provinces is now really going to go on in, in the Tibetan Autonomous Region, even though it hadn't yet. They, the Chinese Beijing had kept its promise. And this is the event that precipitates the flight of the Dalai Lama abroad. He flees into northern India with his entourage, with millions of dollars, and starts the Tibetan exile community, which we all are familiar with to this day. You know, a large community of Tibetans living in northern India, the Dalai Lama traveling around the world, getting a lot of sympathy from politicians, from Hollywood, uh, writing books, you know, being seen as this apolitical, wise Buddhist sage who is above, transcend, transcends politics, above all, you know, the riffraff of this world. That's a, that's a carefully cultivated image. I have nothing against the Dalai Lama. It seems like a nice guy. But from a historical point of view, you have to understand that this is a carefully cultivated image. And he once was a political figure, and he still is a political figure. With power. Okay? This is in contrast to his political rival, political and spiritual rival, the Panchen Lama, who stayed in China, did not flee, and decided to uh, get closer to the Chinese Communist Party. He would eventually be imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution and come to regret his decision, certainly, to stay in China. So, what's next for Tibet? Well, I don't do predictions, I'm a historian, but I would just say that uh, the next big step in all this is going to be the death of the Dalai Lama. All right, the death of the Dalai Lama. As you probably know, when, the Dal when, when, when a Lama dies, he's supposed to be reincarnated into his next life, and they have to find his reincarnation through various, you know, signs <laughs> that, can, that are very subjective, of course, and you can interpret these signs as you will. Now, what's going to happen when he dies? is that you will have the Tibetan exile community. The, the, the Dalai Lama himself has said something like, you know, I don't have to be reborn. It's, it's my decision. It's my spirit's decision. This whole process of transmigration, I can decide that that's it. And there's no reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. I'm guessing that's probably what it's going to do. Um, but you can also have him or his handlers, his high advisors, may actually say, no, 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 he is being reincarnated and we found him. Where do you think they're going to find his reincarnation? Of course they're going to find it among their preferred communities, most likely in northern India. Okay, um, because this is political. It's all political. But Beijing's going to do the same thing. And they're going to find their own historical precedent for it. Their historical precedent is going to be that golden urn lottery system that was introduced by the Qianlong Emperor in the 1790s. And remember that I talked about that in an earlier episode, the Qianlong Emperor wanting to have more control over this you know, volatile, uncertain, unpredictable process of uh, uh, reincarnation of the Lama. He, he, he imposed this golden urn lottery system that was originally used to stamp out corruption among uh, civil service examination graduates during the Ming Dynasty in the 1500s, 1600s, uh, to prevent them from choosing what post they were going to get for their first job serving the empire. Because everyone wanted to go to a lucrative post where you can make a lot of money. 
And so they had this lottery system. You put the name of the uh, 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 county, of all the counties in here, and you pull them out randomly, and that's the county you're going to go to. Chen Long Emperor looks at this and says, this is a great way to uh, impose our authority over the process of reincarnation. And Beijing is absolutely going to pull out a golden urn from the Forbidden City with much pomp and circumstance and say, here we are, we're going through an ancient ceremony that the Tibetans themselves once agreed to. We did this with their full cooperation for 200 years now. And when a Dalai Lama dies, this is how it's done. And they're going to put in the names of five or six, you know, young little boys who come from, you know, various parts of the Tibetan Autonomous Region, maybe the Tibetan regions of Qinghai, Yunnan, or Sichuan. And I can guarantee you they're going to be the, boy, the, the, the little boys of politically reliable Tibetan families who you have no doubts whatsoever about their loyalties. And that will be the next Dalai Lama. You could have a situation in which there's two Dalai Lamas, one outside of China and one inside of China. Or you could have a situation in which the Dalai Lama says, I have no reincarnation, and Beijing will say, that's not your decision. We found the signs, and the reincarnation continues, and so there is another Dalai Lama. It's going to be messy. It's going to be confusing. All I know is the Dalai Lama is very old, <laughs> and he can't last too much longer. He looks very healthy, but come on, no one lives forever. In the next 5, 10, maybe 15 years at most, he's going to die. And when he dies, it's going to get very, very interesting. Okay? Um, all right. Now, Xinjiang. Xinjiang, you know, this is the region. It means new territories, 70% Uyghur, 15% Kazakh, five, you know, 5-10% uh, everyone else. Mongols, Kyrgyz, Hui. Okay? Um, that's your ethnic composition of Xinjiang. Oh, and Han, <laughs> who constitute, you know, just a couple percent as well, in 1949. All right? Most of the Uyghurs in the southern, southwestern part of the province along the oases that rim the Taklamakan Desert. Major difference with, with Tibet, Xinjiang has lots of natural resources and agricultural wealth if you can reach it and exploit it efficiently. This makes a huge incentive to link Xinjiang with the rest of the, of, 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 to link Xinjiang with the rest of the country and to build up its transportation infrastructure. And like I said, the railroad to Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, is built by 1962. 44 years before you have a similar railroad to the capital of the Tibetan Autonomous Region. Okay, uh, another big obvious difference between Xinjiang and Tibet is that uh, Tibet uh, bears the name of its major ethnic group. Xinjiang has this odd history about where its name came from. It's called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Why didn't they just call it the Uyghur Autonomous Region like you did with the Tibetan Autonomous Region? Well, one... You have many more ethnic groups in Xinjiang than you do in Tibet. Tibet is, you know, 99.9% Tibetan originally. Xinjiang has an odd ethnic composition, um, and people are concentrated in certain areas. The Kazakhs, 15% or so of the population of Xinjiang, the Kazakhs are mostly in the north, north of the Tian Shan, the Heavenly Mountains. The Uyghurs, 70%, are mostly in the southwest, in the desert oases. The Kyrgyz are specifically nomads in the southwestern mountains. The Han are mostly in the urban cities that sort of go stretch along the base of the heavenly mountains. And then the Hui are uh, sort of scattered throughout many of the uh, towns, but usually closer to the Han cities than they are to the Uyghurs, although they can be intermixed as well. And there's a few areas where you have Mongol populations, mostly in the southeastern central part of the province. Very, very, there isn't necessarily, the, the, the Uyghurs are obviously the biggest group, but even they aren't scattered uniformly throughout the whole province. Okay, so that's a big obvious difference. 
Um, so, but there's also another reason. Why do you get Xinjiang in here? Well, they debated this. They debated this in the 1950s. Remember, the Communist Party wants to show it's enlightened. And so they say, uh, what should we call this region? What should we call Xinjiang Autonomous Region? And that was the original choice. They said, how about we just call it the Xinjiang Autonomous Region? That was the name it had before. Nothing wrong with that name. And we'll add an autonomous region to it. And they sent this proposal down to the Uyghur, the high-ranking Uyghur cadres who had professed their loyalty to the Communist Party. And they came back and they said the following. We're not too fond of this word Xinjiang. Because Xinjiang means literally new territory. And to say this is a new territory is to suggest that it isn't old territory, which means someone imposed their rule on this land quite recently, or else it wouldn't be new. Xinjiang, Jiang can also mean frontier, dominion. It also has overtones of conquest. And they say, we'd like to, you know, name it something else. Can we name it the Tianshan Autonomous Region? Tianshan, the heavenly mountains, the mountain range that sort of bisects the province in two. Maybe the Tianshan Uyghur Autonomous Region. That would be nice. But we don't really like Xinjiang. And they sent this up to Mao and the other communist leaders, and they came back, and they were, they were indignant. And they said, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with the word Xinjiang. It's not imperialist. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing colonialist about Xinjiang. Because didn't you get the memo? Communists aren't capable of being imperialists. Not only that, Chinese aren't capable of being imperialists. Because we were victims, victims of imperialism. And victims of imperialism cannot turn around and be imperialists themselves. That was the logic. I kid you not. I've seen this in documents. That's what they said. We are incapable of being imperialist, both because we're communist and we are former victims of imperialism. So they could not admit that the word Xinjiang had any colonialist undertones or overtones whatsoever. And so they refused to budge. They said, we are not budging on this. Xinjiang is going to be in the name of this autonomous region. But they said, our Uyghur cadres aren't happy. They're the majority ethnic group, not overwhelming majority, but majority ethnic group. Uh, they aren't happy about just calling it the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. So as a concession to them, they said, okay, we'll add in Uyghur. But we're not getting rid of Xinjiang. So we're just going to have this, you know, uh, weird Frankenstein name of the province. We're going to put both those in there as a compromise to all sides. The Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. All right, already you're seeing differences with Tibet, right? All right, now, how are, how are you going to get at these resources in Xinjiang? Because there are natural resources there. There's potential oil resources. There's always the idea that we can improve the agricultural output of Xinjiang. Okay. Um, there's a lot of promise here, unlike with Tibet. But you need to get at these resources. How are you going to get at these resources? Well, they're going to create a unique institution known as the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. Okay. Uh, the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. For short, it's often referred to as the Bingtuan. All right, a Bingtuan military uh, or, or uh, colonizing organization, although colonizing is a bad translation because they didn't think of themselves as colonizers in the sense that we're thinking of them. They thought of themselves as those who go out, uh, um, soldiers who go out, open up new undeveloped so-called wastelands um, and make them agriculturally productive. The Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, this Bingtuan, is a, a, a government organization that has provincial level status. It's very, very powerful. And it was responsible for overseeing massive Han, Han migration to Xinjiang to try to create new agricultural communities and exploit the oil wealth that Xinjiang was known to have. 
and mineral wealth. Now, there's a key thing about this Han migration. There's tons of Han migration that come in through this Bingtuan uh, military uh, uh, apparatus. Okay. However, most of this migration was uh, sent to purposely segregated communities that were separate from the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. The idea was is that we want massive Han migration to Xinjiang, but we don't want to send these migrants uh, to live side by side and rub shoulders with the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs because that will create ethnic tension. It'll look like we're colonizers. So it, deliberate ethnic segregation was the rule of the day. Okay, so even though the, the population of Xinjiang, of the Han uh, 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 ethnic group in Xinjiang, continued to rise throughout the 50s and 60s, you could still find largely intact, mostly homogenous Uyghur communities, especially throughout the southern parts of the provinces, uh, because the Han migrants were not sent to live alongside them. They were sent in separate, segregated communities. Okay, now... During the 50s and 60s, you get unprecedented Han migration to develop the economy of Xinjiang. And remember, most of these migrants had no choice in the matter. This is complicated. When you get down to the ground level, it's hard to find good guys and bad guys. Because what you find, you know, imperialists and victims and whatnot, is that most of the Han migrants who went to Xinjiang in the 50s and 60s, uh, they didn't have a choice in the matter. They were sent there by the government. Okay? And they saw their migration as a hardship. They said, well, I lived in Shanghai, and I got picked and chosen to be sent out to Xinjiang because I have an education and I have certain technical skills that they don't have out there. And so I go from this wealthy, developed, comfortable part of China, sent out to this desert wasteland that's poor and backward, and I can't even communicate with the local people. This is a hardship for me. I don't want to be here. Okay. Out living out here in the suburbs of DC is a large Chinese community, and I'm shocked at how many times that I've met other, you know, uh, 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 Chinese moms and dads who are from the mainland. They're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, and we get talking about, you know, where they come from and whatnot. And they'll say, "Oh, you you, you don't know where it's from." So, oh, what part of China are you from? And it's like, "Oh, you, you you've you, you've never heard of it." And I say, "Try me." <laughs> and they say, "Oh, it's a Xinjiang region." And I say, "Yeah, I study Xinjiang. Okay, I think I probably know where you came from." And they still don't think that I know the city they're going to come from. They're like, "Okay, maybe he's heard of Xinjiang. He's not going to hear of the actual city that I came from." And they'll say, "Okay, you know, Shihutsu, like, uh, you know, uh, Kalamai, uh, Karamai." Uh, and I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, Shihutsu, Karamai. Those are oil towns. Those are towns opened up and huge. You know, how large numbers of Han migrants go out there because they were exploiting the oil reserves." And they're usually shocked. <laughs> I've heard of these things. Um, and I tell them, you know, I do research this for a living. I do know exactly where these cities are and what the ethnic uh, demographic situation is there as well. Um, and what they say, they say, it was tough growing up there. The winters were so brutal. We had very little. There were no resources. It was a hardship. My parents didn't want to go. And I ended up having to grow up there. And what many of them did is they left Xinjiang and moved to the, in the interior of, of, of China once they had the chance. And they don't have a whole lot of fond memories of Xinjiang either. This was a hardship for those migrants also. And when you go into a hardship situation, you then resent the affirmative action that you see being showered upon the non-Han people. You say, wait a second, I get taken away from my wonderful, comfortable life in a civilized, developed part of China, sent out here to, to do a hardship post for my life, uh, 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 to help these people, and then they're the ones who get preferential university treatment? And, you know, exemption from family planning policies? That's not fair. They're the ones who get a name on the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Why not me? I'm doing all the work. 
what I found, and I don't want to stake a policy position here on affirmative action whatsoever, because that'll just stir up a shitstorm. Let me just say from a historical research perspective, I've been shocked. Every single time I read a book about the history of affirmative action, or when I do my own research, and I, I, I look into how it played out on the ground in Xinjiang, um, I find every single time that it pisses off everyone. <laughs> no one is happy with affirmative action. Okay, those who are the uh, ostensible beneficiaries of affirmative action think that they're just being put on for show. They aren't being given real substantive wealth or responsibilities or, you know, political power or anything. You're just using me. And then those who are not benefiting from affirmative action are resentful because they're not benefiting from affirmative action. And they say, why do you deserve it? Just because you were born a certain way, you, you, you get these privileges and I don't? That's not fair. Everyone's usually pissed off. I don't have a better solution. <laughs> I'm not a politician. All I can tell you is what the historical evidence says is that where I've seen uh, affirmative action implemented, usually everyone's upset uh, at the way it gets implemented. Maybe in theory it's a wonderful thing. Uh, in practice, it seems to, to, to rarely work out as it was intended. Um, so this Han migration, unprecedented Han migration, they go from less than 5% of the population in 1949 to probably about 40, 45% of the population by the 1970s. Now, if you look at the official census numbers, it's not going to be that high. It's going to be like 35% uh, Han and maybe 40% Uyghur. So the Uyghurs still have, you know, barely a majority got, gone down from like 70% before 1949. But the census numbers don't report the military soldiers, the PLA, or the uh, Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. And that's almost overwhelmingly Han. Um, and when you add those numbers in, uh, they're living in Xinjiang, uh, then it's clear that uh, the Han have a, an absolute majority in Xinjiang from about the 1970s on. Okay, huge difference for Tibet. Why not use local Uyghurs and Kazakhs? A couple reasons. Okay, a couple reasons. First, Han brought from the interior speak the language of the state already. If they're educated, usually, oftentimes, um, and they speak the language of the state, and they're more educated in those areas, those technical areas of expertise that you want to exploit immediately for those oil fields or for trying to reclaim desert wasteland. These are technically sophisticated uh, uh, projects. You need educated people. Okay? Now, there are also peasants, male and female, who will also be coerced into going to Xinjiang. Many women will be sent there as brides. They'll be convinced. Oh, Xinjiang's the land of, of, of plenty. Uh, Hami Gua, there's melons from Hami all over the place, dancing minorities in, co in colorful clothes. It's a paradise. Come help us develop this paradise. And many women from the inner provinces, especially from Hunan province, got tricked into going to Xinjiang. Uh, and they found when they got there that they were basically being recruited for brides for the men who were soldiers or part of the Bingtuan who had very difficult, tough lives as well. And then there was no way to get out of Xinjiang. Okay? And then there were also peasants that were brought in from the interior too. Uneducated people who provide brute labor to help develop some of these wastelands. Why use them? Well, uh, you can exploit Han workers and peasants without fear of their discontent being used by foreign powers for secession. Remember that. Remember that. In the interior, most Han especially poor Han, live pretty miserable lives too. And they also get deprived of political representation rights. They go on strike all the time too at their horrible factories. They have a lot of grievances as well. And the Chinese Communist Party sends out the military or the police and they suppress those. And the world doesn't take a whole lot of notice because they're Han. What are you going to do? 
You're going to overthrow the Communist Party? Forget about it. Not a whole lot of choice there. But when non-Han peoples get the same sort of treatment, well, then the rest of the world looks at it and goes, oh, oppressed minorities. They should have their own state. They should be liberated. Remember, that's the ideal of the nation state. How come we don't go uh, make more of an effort to liberate them? All right, and, that, and that's the danger. If you employ the Uyghurs and then exploit them in the conditions that the migrants are being exploited in, then the Uyghurs are going to turn around and look for support for an independent state. The Han can't do that. Okay? The Han can't be used by foreign powers for the sake of be, uh, 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 secession, an independent state, putting a thorn in, chi in China's side, whereas the Uyghurs or Kazakhs, if they're discontent, they absolutely can. As a result, Xinjiang becomes much more closely integrated with the rest of the country. Okay? Much more integrated with the rest of the country. All the political campaigns, everything, the cultural revolution, it's all going to occur in Xinjiang, just like any other province. Prior to 1949, you would have to say much of China, uh, what happened in one region did not necessarily happen in another region. You could live totally different parallel lives and never have contact with what's going on somewhere else. Even the Japanese invasion, you know, wouldn't have affected people in the same way in different parts of China. After 49, everything happens everywhere. Tibet being a small exception for the 1950s, but even but eventually even Tibet. And that's one of the real quote-unquote accomplishments of the Communist Party. You know, truly integrating the whole, every region of the former empire into one unit. For better or for worse, that is nonetheless the result. Okay, now the last thing we need to talk about, we need to talk about the ethnic classification system. Okay, the ethnic classification system for the Han and the non-Han of Xinjiang, of, of all of the PRC. Okay, um, it's during the 20th century that you get official definitions, official so-called scientific definitions of who everyone is in China. You know, what are we going to call these people? What are their ethnic designations? This is called an ethnic classification project, Minzu Shibie, in Chinese. Okay. Now the nationalists had a very chauvinistic view of China. They took that term Zhonghua, a mix of Zhongguo and Huaxia, and they said Zhonghua uh, is what we use for our translation of China. Zhonghua Mingguo, the Republic of China. Zhonghua means China and the Chinese, and they infused it with a racial component, with a racial meaning. Very much analogous to Han. China, simply by default, meant Han to the nationalists. And they went out of their way to say, there's no such thing as non-Chinese people in China. We're all Chinese. There's one race, the Zhonghua Minzu. And everyone else is a clan or a tribe. They're a Bu Luo or a Zongzu. That's it. And they were widely criticized for the chauvinistic view. It didn't really matter in practice because they never really controlled the whole country. They couldn't really put these ideas in, you know, implement them on the ground. If they did, it would be wholesale assimilation. Um, but the communists are going to come to power, and that's the legacy they're inheriting. They're inheriting a legacy in which the nationalists have basically said there's only one race in China. The communists say we're going to be much more enlightened than that. We're going to be much more enlightened than that. Okay? We're going to use scientific methods first developed in the Soviet Union, the most advanced scientific socialist state. We're going to use scientific methods to determine exactly what ethnic groups exist in this country. And then we're going to in, uh, uh, 
institutionalize your identity through schools, through family planning, through education, um, you know, all these sorts of things, through political representation, you're going to be institutionalized permanently. And that's how we show how enlightened we are and why you shouldn't seek independence outside of the umbrella of the Chinese communist state. All right. Um, so first, they deal with the question of Han. Who are the Han? Well, it's not as simple a question as, as you might think. If you listen to the episode on who are the Han many episodes ago, you learn that the word Han was a term introduced by northern nomadic non-Han peoples to describe their subjects and distinguish between two different types of people who were nonetheless both under the civilized Huaxia umbrella. Okay? By the 20th century, it was still sort of a vague term, a term that was generally associated with the 18 inner provinces, but nonetheless, even within those 18 inner provinces, there's a hell of a lot of diversity. And since we're talking about the Soviet model, it bears mentioning that the Soviets had a different way. The Soviets had a different way of thinking about the Han. In the 1930s, when the Soviets were doing their own ethnic classification project, they found that they had significant overseas Chinese minority communities within their, within their borders as well. And they looked at them and they said, based on our criteria, we have different Chinese ethnic groups. They're not all the same. And in 1932, the Soviet linguists decided that they would create a Latin alphabet for five different overseas Chinese communities that they had within their borders. These groups were known in Russian as Shandonsky, Guandonsky, Fudzienskoy, Dziansu, Dziansi, and Jidzidziana. My Russian is terrible. Please don't laugh at me. But you should be able to tell, if you know anything about the name, if you're familiar with the names of Chinese provinces, you should be able to tell those are the Russian pronunciations of Chinese provinces. These are the regions where those Chinese overseas communities came from. The people from Shandong, the people from Guangdong, Guangdongsky, Shandongsky, Fujianskoy, people from Fujian. And they were seen as different ethnic groups with their own mutually unintelligible language. And as a result, they should get designation as an ethnic group. There is no monolithic Han ethnic group in the eyes of the Soviet linguists. And eventually they, they disposed of this plan because they thought, well, we don't want to have to make all these concessions to five different ethnic groups. What a pain in the ass. It's going to devolve a lot of political power and stuff to them. Let's just say there's Han. <laughs> and that's what they did. Chinese communists will do a very similar thing eventually. So remember that. Okay. And so I'm, but the reason I want to bring that up is because I want you to understand there are different ways of thinking about who the Han are, even in the 20th century. Okay? It was a deliberate political decision to say 90% of the country is Han. Because if you were predisposed otherwise, you could say that mutually unintelligible languages, difference in regional customs... Difference in economic livelihood constitute different ethnic groups. And this monolithic, you know, huge juggernaut of Han is an illusion. And there are actually many different ethnic groups within that label. Now, the communist state was not going to go there because that would just make them more susceptible to being split apart. If you start conceding that there are different identities for all of your people, you're giving them a platform to potentially pursue independence or political autonomy. And one day that could undermine the very foundation of your state power and unity. 
And so it was a conscious decision to reject any notion that the Han are not a homogenous unit of 90% of the population. But this is an illusion. As I've said before, if you travel throughout China, you will be stunned by the diversity. And if you traveled throughout China 50 years ago, you would be stunned by the linguistic diversity. And so many places you would go, you'd find out, I can't, I can't make myself understood speaking Mandarin Chinese here. They speak something else. And if you went out into rural areas, you'd find customs that were so different from village to village, from province to province, that you would say, this is a different ethnic group. Look how different the, you know, the religious customs are. All these sorts of things. But no. 90% of the population are Han. End of story. Boom. No debate. Because we want to project unity to the world. Now, over time, these identities can be naturalized. If you, if you put down on paper, you're, you, you, you are Han. You're one group. And then you convince everyone of that through 12 years of state-sponsored education, of you know, national media, of textbooks, of literature, everything you refer to them as Han, people internalize that and they grow up believing that. That's how you can manufacture an ethnic group. It happens all the time. And it's going to happen for the minority peoples as well. Okay? And here we talk a little bit about Yunnan. Now in Tibet and Xinjiang, the ethnic groups were already sort of determined. Tibet was obvious, there's the Tibetans. Mongolia was obvious, there's the Mongols. Xinjiang was not obvious. There were many different ethnic groups, but the Soviets, because they already had significant uh, 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 economic interests in Xinjiang and had supported some of the warlords in the 1930s and 1940s, they had already introduced Soviet affirmative action and a Soviet ethnic, ethnic classification scheme into Xinjiang during the 1930s and 40s before the communists ever had power there. And so the, the ethnic groups of Xinjiang had already been, quote-unquote, scientifically determined by Soviet uh, ethnologists um, before 20 years, 15 years before the communists ever came to power. And they determined there are 14 ethnic groups in Xinjiang, with the Uyghurs being the biggest one. Okay, so you got 14 ethnic groups in Xinjiang. You have one, you know, basically one in Tibet. You've got one in Inner Mongolia, um, down in, you know, province of Guizhou, Guangxi. You've got a handful. Um, and then there's Yunnan, this far southwestern province that butts up against Southeast Asia. Yunnan was a mosaic a patchwork quilt of tons of groups of people who wasn't quite clear what they all were. Okay, they made up collectively, they probably made up about 50% of the population and the rest of the population was Han or Hui, Chinese Muslims. But that other 50%, who are they? And this was not a clear you know, answer. Some of them were a little more obvious. Oh, these are related to the Thai people, you know, of Thailand. These are the Hmong people. Uh, but a lot of them were a lot less clear. And so they said, in Yunnan, we still have a lot of people who are so backward that there's no clear sense of group identities that has coalesced among them. They're still in a primitive Marxist stage of socioeconomic and cultural evolution. So they said, all right, we're so enlightened. Let's start off and let the people in Yunnan self-identify what their minzu is, what their ethnic group is. That's how tolerant and respectful we are. We're not like the nationalists, chauvinistic nationalists that say you're all Chinese, you're just branches of a Chinese family. The problem is when they sent out these surveys to all the villages of Yunnan, many people had no idea what was meant by a minzu. This concept itself, an, ethni an ethnic group, is very strange. It's not natural. We have to invent the concept of ethnicity. All right, and, you know, 
in case you have any sort of pre-existing ideas here about you know ethnicity and race and whatnot, they're all socially constructed. They're all social and cultural constructs that exist only in our mind. All right. Yes, we have differences in skin color, bone structure, these sorts of things. Those are more on a continental or regional basis. Okay. There's nothing cultural about them. There's nothing primordial about them. All right. If there was an undisputed definition of race that was scientifically determined and was sort of like, you know, oh, this is, you know, the Ten Commandments from on high. This is the way our reality truly is. Then the categories in our census would not change every 10 years. Every 10 years, the categories in our census for race change. Why do they change? Because they change in accordance with new ideas about what race is. Precisely because there is no unchanging anchored uh, definition of race. They are political, they are, well, they are political, social, cultural constructs that change over time. Okay. And we invent these things and they exist in our mind and we come to subscribe to them. We believe that these are true. Oh, I really believe that I'm this. That's what I am. It's an illusion. It doesn't really exist outside of your mind. Okay, you're just an accumulation of bone, flesh, and blood upon which you've slapped a label based on perceived inherited cultural characteristics that are not really inherited at all. They are reared and cultivated and pounded into your brain from a very young age by people who have a political agenda to do that to you. And we embrace these oftentimes and subscribe to them as we get older. Now in Yunnan... Naturally, most people had no idea. They're very uneducated peasants in the villages. They have no idea. What means who am I? What ethnic group am I? What, 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 what is an ethnic group? And so they would give names of things, you know. My ethnic group, they would write down the name of their village. They would write down the name of their family. They would write down the name of that mountain or that river down, down the road. That's my ethnic group. The result, the Chinese anthropologists got the surveys back and they said, we have 400 ethnic groups in Yunnan alone. I mean, we have 400 ethnic groups in China. 200 of those are in Yunnan alone. This is not okay. Why is it not okay? Because each ethnic group is going to be institutionalized with educational perks, family planning perks, their own schools, their own script, all of these things. And each minority gets one seat at the National People's Congress in 1954. How many seats are going to be in the National Congress? We want to have about 1,200 seats. Well, with all these minority groups, that means 33% of the delegates will be minorities, despite the fact that we already determined that they make up less than 10% of the overall population of China. This is not okay. So Beijing basically says, go back there to Yunnan and get this number down. Fix the number. There can't be 200 ethnic groups in Yunnan. Okay? The people don't know what they're talking about when they self-identify. Go in there and find a politically correct number. This is how insane our idea of race and ethnic group is. This is, you know, totally arbitrary. And so the ethnographers went out to Yunnan, these Han ethnographers, and they would try to convince people, you belong to this ethnic group. You don't think you're a part of this ethnic group, but look, and they would present evidence. Look, your language, these are the words that you have in common that you've borrowed from this ethnic group. And then the other people would come back and they'd say, no, that's only 20% of our lexicon. Yeah, we borrowed those, but that doesn't mean we're them. I mean, heck, English borrows tons of words from French. Do the English think they're French? No. And then the ethnographers would sort of try to convince them. 
come on, come on, join this ethnic group. And some would, and others wouldn't. And then eventually, the, 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 these Han ethnographers, feeling the pressure, the first National People's Congress, which is basically a rubber stamp organization, but still very important rubber stamp, uh, was going to meet in 1954. And they don't have a solid list of who the ethnic groups in Yunnan are. We have to get this thing done. And so they came down and they said, we don't have time for this anymore. We're just going to arbitrarily impose our definition. Well, not totally arbitrarily. We're going to impose our definition. And they're just going to have to accept it. And so they had the Stalinist criteria for what constitutes an ethnic group. Common culture, common language, common land, common economy. By default, however, the quickest way to determine what ethnic group existed was by language. And they disposed of common economy, common land, and common culture. And they said, when we determine that a sufficient number of the words in your language are related to that ethnic group that we've already determined exists, that's your ethnic group. That's the label we're putting on you. Love it or leave it. No choice. And in the end, they culled down this group of, of uh, uh, ethnicities in Yunnan to a little bit over 20, I believe. It's still by far the most ethnic, uh, ethnic groups in any in any. Uh, provincial level unit in China today. All right. But it was done almost purely on the basis of language and, you know, not totally arbitrarily, but a lot of arbitrariness was involved in this for political purposes. All right. If you're more interested in this, the Ethnic Classification Project uh, has a wonderful book on it by Thomas Mullaney. I already recommended his book on the Chinese typewriter. He also has a book um, on the Ethnic Classification Project what the hell is it called? Um, I can't think of the title right now, but put in Thomas Mullaney and you'll find his, his two books. Uh, was his, his, his first book talks about the Ethnic Classification Project in the early 1950s. Um, the legacy of the Ethnic Classification Project. Well, there's a couple things. No by minzus are allowed. Okay, upon adulthood, you must choose the ethnicity of one parent or the other. Why? Because they don't want this carefully cultivated image of a scientifically determined uh, group of 56, exactly 56 ethnic groups in China to be shattered. Today, there are exactly 56 ethnic groups in China. Okay, and if you let people be half this and half that, that's a slippery slope to creating new ethnic groups. They don't want the, the, the census to have to change every 10 years, <laughs> right? And so they say, you got to choose one parent or the other, and that's your ethnic group. Think back to the Manchus. When the Manchus, during the Qing Dynasty, remember I told you before, every single Manchu emperor had significant Han or Mongol blood flowing in their veins through all the, you know, intermarriage. They all intermarried with one another, but they still considered themselves Manchu. Okay, again, race, not a, 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 a pre-existing biological de uh, uh, determination. It's a conscious political decision what race you are. And the Manchus did that in the 18th and 19th century, and the Ch Chinese communist state is doing the exact same thing. Okay, and eventually, even though there's a great deal of arbitrariness and artificiality involved in the definition of these 56 ethnic groups, Nonetheless, once they're institutionalized, once each member of this ethnic group goes to school, uh, being taught, this is your ethnic group, this is the history of your ethnic group, here's your ID, Chinese uh, official ID cards have your ethnicity written right on your ID card. All right, this is who you are. It's written in stone. You believe it. The identity becomes naturalized. You've brought that identity into existence. And so, yeah, most people in China will believe 
I am a member of this ethnic group. There are 56 ethnic groups in China. You can naturalize what were once artificial categories. There are some stories. Every once in a while you look in the newspapers, you'll see a story here or there of some group that's trying to petition to be considered a different ethnic group, and I believe every single one of them has been rejected. Uh, that number of 56 is inviolable. Inviolable. Okay? Now, there is change going on. All right? There is a change going on in the past 20 years or so that's accelerated in the past couple of years regarding this ethnic classification system, Soviet affirmative action, uh, the system of regional autonomy. All right, there is a growing repudiation of the, of the 56 Minzu system, and there is a revival in the last couple years of that nationalist Chiang Kai-shek era, Zhonghua, there's one Chinese race discourse, and it's Han. It's a default with Han. Okay? Let me give you a little sense of how this has changed through the case study of Xinjiang. All right, if you've been paying attention to the news, all right, uh, for future podcast listeners 10 years from now, if I'm still, if this is still around, just so you know, this is being recorded in the summer of 2019, okay? And in the summer of 2019, we are witnessing the worst, single worst human rights crisis in China since the Cultural Revolution. What's going on in the cities of Xinjiang today is the introduction of an oppressive security apparatus, a system of arbitrary and indefinite detention, and coercive assimilationist measures all designed, all targeting the Uyghur ethnic group, and many other ethnic groups in China as well, uh, in Xinjiang as well, but definitely the Uyghurs, Muslims specifically. Okay, we now know but since 2016, from 2016 to 2019, it appears that there are, have been the creation of massive detention centers that are referred to euphemistically as vocational or re-education centers. They aren't concentration camps in the sense that people get killed in them, like with the Jews and the Holocaust. Okay, uh, They are places of arbitrary, indefinite detention where you will be forced to leave your family and undergo a program of indoctrination and propagation, uh, propaganda, profess your loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party, renounce the backward religious views of Islam, and gain so-called useful skills for the workplace until you're deemed fit and not a threat to re-enter society. Okay? Estimates are that up to 10% of the entire Uyghur population of Xinjiang in the past three years has been put into these detention camps. Okay? Uyghurs, perhaps 10 to 12 million Uyghurs in Xinjiang, this means over a million Uyghurs have been put into these camps. Now, I was skeptical of this before. I was actually skeptical. I thought, this can't really be happening. This must be overzealous China watchers outside of China who are, 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 are you know, imagining elements of this. It can't be true. And increasingly, I was shown the evidence by people who were doing the research, and I thought, dang, this is true. They really are doing this. The evidence is irrefutable. Satellite evidence, evidence of, of job uh, uh, re 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 recruitment advertisements for security guards, um, you know, families, academics and families who were telling other people outside of China stories of relatives disappearing. I'm like, my God, this is actually happening. It's amazing that China is doing this. I couldn't believe it myself. How did we get here? What are the origins of this crisis? Okay, well, the origins occurred in the 1980s and the 1990s. We already talked about the system, you know, Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, affirmative action, which was often seen as a failure, uh, not sincerely implemented in Xinjiang, lots of complaints, everyone's upset. Nevertheless, throughout the Mao years, there was generally a sense that it was a good thing 
to be a Uyghur or to be non-Han, your identity mattered, and that there were certain privileges and perks and responsibilities that came along with your special identity. And the state would protect that identity. Okay? That changed. That changed in the 1980s and the 1990s. Okay? One of the things that happened in the 19, a couple things that happened in the 1990s. The Soviet Union broke up in 1991. When the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, suddenly you had all these Central Asian republics. Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. Say that five times fast. Um, who share linguistic ties, at least four of them. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. All are Turkic-speaking countries. Uyghur is a Turkic language. All right, so essentially all the Turkic-speaking peoples of Central Asia had a republic, except for the Uyghurs, who only had an autonomous region. Now, those republics in the Soviet Union were puppet states. They weren't true independents until 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and by default, these became accidental states. Oh my God, they are now independent. Well, what do you think the effect was on Uyghurs living in Xinjiang? Now, we are the only Turkic-speaking people of Central Asia that doesn't have its own Stan, its own state. Shouldn't there be an Uyghurstan? Uyghurstan? So there was a fear in Beijing, which probably wasn't totally unfounded, that many people in Xinjiang, Uyghurs, began to be discontented when they saw the Soviet Union collapse and the Kazakhs get their own state, the Uzbeks get their own state, the Turkmens get their own state, the Kyrgyz get their own state. What about us? We're like the Kurds of Central Asia. A large, well-defined culture and community that does not have its own state. And then, the results of, of, of research surveys came in that showed that the Uyghurs had the worst Chinese language skills of any minority group in all of China. And they thought, well, this is, all, this is really bad. The Uyghurs are the most obvious candidate, along with the Tibetans, for having their own independent state outside of the rubric of China. They have not integrated very well because their Chinese language skills are pretty bad. Okay. Um, we need to start thinking about measures to take to prevent a collapse of our Republic, People's Republic of China along the lines of the Soviet Union collapse because we took Soviet policies. Yes, we were wise enough not to put in the policy of secession, and in, 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 in our constitution, and we were also smart enough not to create independent republics as part of a Chinese federation, but nonetheless, our basic model is still the model of the Soviet Union. We're still the model of the Soviet Union. And so there was a growing belief in the 1990s that the so-called permissive affirmative action policies of the Mao era had inhibited the integration of the non-Han minorities in China, most dangerously in the case of Uyghurs and Tibetans, who may be inspired by the breakup of the Soviet Union to pursue their own independent states. And the Uyghurs drew special attention from the communist state when you started to see radical uh, 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 Islam being exported by certain terrorist groups around the world in the 1990s. I'm talking about Osama bin Laden. Al-Qaeda. Not representative of global Islam, but one small strain within it that gets an enormous amount of global press and attention and inspires fear. I mean, you might say overreactions among policymakers in states where there are large numbers of Muslims in which you fear perhaps we have 
our own Muslim problem. And so there's a growing sense that the Mao era policies were a mistake. They were a mistake. And in the past couple of years, we've seen a revival of this single Zhonghua Minzu, Chinese race discourse that is explicitly racial and explicitly links Han as the default Zhonghua Minzu race, and everyone else is a part of that race. We don't have 56 unique identities. You often hear people talk about the Han as a snowball ethnic group now that absorbs the best of everyone else and yet somehow never becomes not Han. It's always just still Han. So the idea is that socialist transformation may have failed. And they looked at the Western world and they said, the West isn't doing a very bang-up job in their response to uh, Islamic terrorism either. They're bungling it from one thing to the next. From Iraq to Libya to Afghanistan, they're doing a horrible job of dealing with radical Islam and terrorist movements. We can have a unique and successful Chinese approach. Chinese anti-terrorism with Chinese characteristics. Okay. And this has led to the extraordinary measures on display today, all facilitated by the post-September 11th U.S. global war on terror. What happened after September 11th, 2001, is that the U.S. initiated, as you might remember, or if you're too young, maybe you don't remember this, but I I definitely remember this. Um, You know, they said, you know, we're initiating a, a global war on terror, and they looked for allies. And China, very, very shrewdly, jumped on board and said, hey, yeah, we'll join you in the global war on terror. By the way, we have our own terrorists. Did you ever hear of the East Turkestan Islamic Movement? Yeah, that's our terrorist group. And the U.S. wanted China's support, so they signed off, said, yep, we recognize that as a terrorist group, giving legitimization to China's claims that Uyghurs were terrorists. And a little known aspect of the story is that right after September 11th, 2001, China started to uh, intensify its crackdown on Muslims, specifically Uyghur Turkic-speaking Muslims in China as a way of uh, sort of uh, uh, neutralizing a perceived threat under the umbrella of a U.S.-sanctioned global war on terrorism. In 2002, China eliminated university-level courses in minority languages in Xinjiang. I heard this firsthand when I was was at the University of Washington in 2003 doing an MA degree in international studies. We had a professor from Xinjiang University, a a wonderful Uyghur scholar, um, and I had already done a few years of Chinese. I thought, ooh, I'll take Uyghur. It's another language within China. I get to learn the Arabic script, and I took two years of Uyghur. And this teacher told us the story of just how the year before, he, uh, he was ordered to start giving his lectures in Chinese only. His students were all Uyghurs at Xinjiang University in Urumqi. And he said he would give his whole lecture in Chinese because he was very educated. He, he, he could do the lecture in Chinese. But then he said afterwards, he'd go into the hallway and all the stu- his Uyghur students would crowd around him and say, now can you tell us what you just said in Uyghur? Because they didn't understand Chinese. All right. But they now had to take all of their university courses in Chinese only. In 2004, they stepped this up and they eliminated minority language education in primary schools. Okay. You can see the linguistic assimilation of the minority peoples going on here a repudiation of the rights that were enshrined in the Constitution for minority peoples, for those 55 minority ethnic groups in China. In 2008, the Beijing Olympics was China's coming out party to the world. One of the things that the Communist Party leaders were terrified of is that the Tibetans and the Uyghurs would ruin the, 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 the coming out party of China. And what happened is that Uyghurs and Tibetans were forbidden from uh, 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 booking hotel rooms in Beijing. In the run-up to 2008, those, those Summer Olympics, 
and there was an increased crackdown on them as well. At the same time, you started to get your first response to these things. You had ethnic rioting that occurred, massive street violence, both in Lhasa and Urumqi. And first in 2008 and 2009, I remember the 2009 one very well, in Urumqi. Because I was getting ready to go over to China for, dis- for a year of dissertation research, bringing my wife and our daughter, Sasha, who was only a year old then. Not even a year old yet. And I planned to stay in Urumqi for 11 months doing archival research. That was wishful speaking. I never would have gotten archival research access anyways if I had done that. Um, and that summer, it was sometime in early July, I believe. I was going to leave in late August. All that rioting occurred. It was big international news. Over 200 people were killed. Han and Uyghur. Um, and I successfully petitioned to have my uh, fellowship. I had a Fulbright uh, to be you know, relocated to Beijing. And then I would just fly to Urumqi a few times for a week-long trip, but without my wife or my daughter. Um, anyways, this was you know, increasing at that point. And after 2009, after that ethnic street rioting in 2009, it is estimated that about 10 to 20,000 Uyghurs fled China for Turkey. And they were allowed to leave. China was tacitly allowing these Uyghurs to leave. Good riddance. And this is when the real terrorist act started. Initially, most scholars now believe that China was basically inventing a terrorist group. It didn't really exist. There were a handful of four or five Uyghurs who ended up in Al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan, hardly representative of the Uyghurs as a whole, 10 million Uyghurs in Xinjiang. All right. And now scholars believe that what was really not a threat at first and was conjured up out of existence for a political agenda ended up actually existing as time went on. The Chinese Communist Party literally brought Uyghur terrorism into existence. And when these 10 to 20,000 Uyghurs fled China for Turkey after 2009, this is when many of them started turning to terrorist networks in the Middle East. We now know that 3,000 Uyghurs somehow ended up in Syria during the Syrian civil war and turned up with ISIS, the terrorist group ISIS in the Middle East. And some of these would then go back into China and would undertake, you know, legitimate terrorist acts. In 2012, there was an attempted hijacking of a plane from the city of Kotan to Urumqi in Xinjiang. The next year, 2013, there was a car fire, sort of a car fire bomb thing that occurred in Tiananmen in which Uyghurs were driving a car. They drove it into Tiananmen. I think they hit several tourists and killed a few people. And then the car was set on fire. This really spooked the Beijing leadership. Now they've brought terrorism to the heart of China in Tiananmen Square. It's no longer off in distant Xinjiang. And then in 2013, uh, 2014, the next year after that, there was a mass knifing incident in a railway station in Kunming, down in Yunnan. It seemed to be everywhere. All these were carried out by, yeah, Uyghur terrorists who had been responding to China's policies in Xinjiang over the past 20 years. The reaction by Beijing... In 2016, they appointed a a communist official by the name of Chen Chenguo, who previously had been in Tibet, sort of the old northern hybrid state, uh, uh, you know, pre-imperial policy of uh, uh, um, typecasting your officials, right? You would have certain people who would only be sent to minority border regions because they were seen to to have a knack for dealing with these uh, special situations. Chen Chenguo was transferred from Tibet in 2016, where he had already started to implement some increased surveillance and, de- and detention measures in Lhasa. And they said, unleashed him. You know, go crazy in Xinjiang. You have full reign to do what you want. The world watches Tibet much closer than they watch Xinjiang. The world doesn't really care about Muslims. The Western world doesn't really care that much about Muslims. They care about Buddhists. 
And they think Buddhists are pacifist, cute teddy bears, and they get outraged whenever we do anything to Buddhists. Uh, but Muslims, they don't care about Muslims. We can do whatever we want. The world's barely going to watch. That's absolutely the mindset. And Chen Chengguo then starts undertaking new policies against global radical Islam, he calls it. We're going to modernize. We're going to bring Xinjiang into the modern world and protect the people for their own safety. And he implements a campaign of coercive assimilation of Uyghur culture and language on the pretext that Uyghurs are Muslims and Muslims equal terrorists. And that's when you get the beginning of the arbitrary detention and re-education. What are the criteria to be sent to one of these uh, re-education camps? Receiving a foreign phone call, growing a beard, going to pray at a mosque, not watching state TV, giving a Muslim and greeting, uh, giving a greetum, giving a Muslim greeting to another Muslim, eating halal food. Pretty insane stuff. Okay, how do, you, how do they know these things are going on? Because they set up police checkpoints throughout the cities. Foreign journalists re- 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 reported on these things. And every single city, places like Arumchi and Kashgar and Khotan, you would have a police checkpoint at each intersection. And the idea was that you could see the next police checkpoint down the road so that they were always visible with one another. And in these checkpoints, you have to hand over your phone, give the password, and they'll, and they'll insert a, a card into your phone to see what's going on and look for subversive activities, to look for foreign phone calls. How invasive is that? Your phones are monitored. Your conversations are monitored. They intruded into the family unit. They gave monetary rewards. Well, I'm, I'm not talking about past tense. This is present tense, damn it. It's not even past tense. They are giving Monetary rewards for Han Uyghur mixed marriages. They are requiring Uyghur families to invite Han colleagues from their workplace to stay in their home, eat dinner with your family, sleep in a bed in your house. This is insane. Forced home sales to Han. If a Uyghur, uh, if a building is occupied mostly by Uyghur families, and one Uyghur family wants to sell their apartment or their condo, whatever it is, they can be forced by the state to sell to a Han family so they can integrate the building. If this was Israel and Palestine, there would be a global uproar, and it would be a daily you know, lead story in newspapers. There is growing media awareness now. It took a while, but now it's actually, this is something that does get reported on. Not as much as the Palestine and you know, Middle Eastern issues get reported on, but it is, it is out there. Politicians are aware of it. I was actually called upon um, in fall of 2018 to give testimony on Capitol Hill uh, to members of Congress. Uh, you can just search Justin Jacobs' testimony if you're interested in what I said, in which I talked about this issue. Okay, and most people who study Xinjiang and the Muslims of China have uh, gotten involved in writing op-eds and whatnot, trying to raise awareness of this. I never thought I would be in that position, but uh, this is the region that I do research on, and this is actually going on. So I try to give some historical context to it. There's been very little backlash or criticism from anyone in the Muslim world. This is one of the most conspicuous aspects of the story. All right, is who is actually criticizing what they're doing? Surprisingly, it's not Muslim countries for the most part. Why? Well, a couple reasons. China's economic clout, similar to how China forces countries to choose between the PRC and the ROC on Taiwan. Okay, it does the same thing with every other domestic issue. You choose Taiwan, you lose access to the China market. No, no, very few countries can withstand that kind of economic blow. 
Okay, you have to choose China. Second, Uyghurs are the wrong kind of Muslims. They're a little-known Turkic-speaking Central Asian people, not Arabs or Persians. Heck, even if they're Arabs or Persians, there's not a whole lot of sympathy for those type, for any type of Muslims in most places of the Western world. And then there's a reluctance among the non-wealthy, you know, first-world Western country. There's a reluctance to criticize China because China adopts anti-Western imperialist rhetoric. They often say, we have been a victim of the West. We've been long been a victim of Western imperialism. You all suffered from Western imperialism too. We are, we profess solidarity with the third world. And so another third world country is reluctant to criticize China. You also were a famous sufferer of Western imperialism, just like we were. So it feels weird now, criticizing you for being an imperialist especially when we benefit from our, our economic relationship with you so much. We are all sufferers of Western imperialism. To acknowledge that you are capable of practicing imperialism and genocide is to suggest that we can do that too. And we don't want people to think that. We want to keep our rhetorical bulletproof vest on that uh, once a victim, always a victim. And we don't victimize any other people. Only the Westerners do that. My own personal take on this is that what's going on in Xinjiang now, and to a lesser extent among all other minority groups in China, but especially Muslims, but hey, Tibetans as well, uh, Hui eventually, is that they likely will ensure cultural linguistic assimilation. All right? China has the, the capability of doing that, and no foreign power is going to intervene. If that's truly what they want, they will achieve cultural linguistic assimilation among all of China's minority peoples, if they truly want that. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to achieve political assimilation. Okay? You can have homegrown terrorism elsewhere, and much of the terrorist activity that's occurring in China by Uyghurs today is, uh, by most scholars' definition, it's something that China conjured into existence by its own policies and its own discourse. And in that sense, the problems will continue to go on, even if you don't have culturally and linguistically distinct minority communities. All right, now we've just talked about the trauma, <laughs> the trauma and occasional joys, but largely the trauma, of being a non-Han minority in communist China. Now we're going to talk about the trauma of being Han, okay? That's right. We have finally arrived at the Cultural Revolution in episode 40. Episode 40, we did it! 40 episodes, my God, of Beyond Huaxia. Beyond Huaxia.